The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. This morning I'm going to pick up and continue where we have been in the Gospel of Mark as we continue to look at this, um, this primary, I would say, Gospel of Discipleship. As Mark begins to unfold for us the life of Jesus, and in the Gospel of Mark, more than any other Gospel, I believe, is, uh, is just a, a model for us, as Jesus made disciples, how we too are to be a disciple and we are to make disciples. I've entitled this message, You Will Be Persecuted, Maybe. You Will Be Persecuted, Maybe, And we're going to get to the maybe part at the end. But as we look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and when we take all of the Gospels and we put them together, it reveals that in Jesus' life, beyond just going to the cross and suffering uh, the death that you and I deserved as sinners, but beyond that, throughout His whole life and ministry that is unfolded to us, we see that Jesus experienced a lot of personal pain as a result of who He was and also as a result of the message He began to proclaim as we started looking in the early part of the Gospel of Mark. Just a year earlier, before we look at these three episodes in, the cha- in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark, We had seen, if you remember, that that Jesus had suffered extreme rejection in his own hometown of Nazareth. Uh, His own folks, his own people had rejected him. His ministry started out with, well, if you remember, and and Luke records it in his gospel, when he stood up there in the synagogue and he read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and the, the scriptures say that after he read that, all spoke well of him. Think about that. You ever had somebody speak well of you and then only to find out later they did not uh, continue to speak well of you? And so the tables had turned and they didn't speak well of Jesus. But the moment that Jesus began to uh, preach during his earthly ministry, and it starts in the Gospel of Mark, that he began preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. And there was primarily three things in his message that He was preaching throughout, the kingdom of God is at hand, and therefore you need to repent, you need to turn from sin and turn to the living God. And then the third qualification is that, and you've got to follow me. In other words, there's no other condition that's allowable. He says you've got to turn from your sin, repent, and you have to follow me if you want to be one of my disciples. You remember in chapter 3 as we were going through this, at one point even his, only, his own family, including Mary, who had, had, had foreknowledge of who Jesus was, they began to really doubt who he was. And they came at one time because they were kind of thinking, you know, maybe he's crazy, maybe he's out of his mind as well. So we see that pattern where they begin to question Jesus. We saw in the third chapter, the moment that he healed the withered man's hand, it says that the Pharisees began to set out, or the Sadducees began to set out and see how they might be able to destroy Jesus. In other words, early on, they had a plan because he was interrupting the whole system. And they set out to see how they might destroy him, how they might kill him. Later, John would write in his gospel as it relates to you and I and also to his early disciples where he said this in John chapter 15. 
He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If I could put in parentheses, I would say, it ain't about you, J-Mo. Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now John lays out for us what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus is saying, listen, there is a difference between those who are in the world and the way you once were as a part of the world and in your life now that you've trusted Christ and you've committed to follow Him. Or at least there should be a difference, right? And he's saying, listen, if, if the world hates you, it's because of me and because you are following me. This pattern of persecution would come to fruition as Jesus had predicted. We find it early in Acts chapter 4 where we see that Peter and John are arrested there by the Sadducees. They're questioned and they're, and they're beaten and they're commanded not to continue to preach the gospel of Christ. Soon after that, chapter 6, we see that Stephen had ruffled their feathers, to put it that way, by preaching the gospel of Christ. And they went to the extent at the feet of who would later become the apostle Paul, Saul, where they laid their cloaks at his feet so they had, had good freedom of movement so they could throw the rocks and stone Stephen to death. You see, there was a cost and there was a price to be paid for following Jesus and proclaiming the message of the gospel. As we go through the book of Acts, and I'm not going to make, uh, make point of every reference for you, but in, in Acts chapter 12, we see King Herod executes James, and he, and he throws Peter in prison. We see later Saul, who would see Jesus on the road to Damascus, was called by Jesus himself, and where Paul and Barnabas would go out and proclaim the gospel from town to town that they would go to. They were driven out and run out and attempted to stone Paul on numerous occasions, but God's providential hand delivered him from that. Even in one instance where he was stoned, he survived. We go all through the gospel of uh, the book of Acts and we see over and over and over these words of Jesus where he had proclaimed in Matthew chapter 10 that I am sending you out among wolves and expect persecution. They hated me and they're going to hate you as well. We see that pattern continue over and over and over. And not only from those instances we see in Scripture where all of the original apostles, with the exception of Judas, suffered death by means of persecution. And early church historians write and tell us of that. There is a price to pay for following Jesus. Now, how do we as a Western congregation read this? Because undoubtedly, most of us, I'd say maybe all of us, will we'll never experience the type of persecution that we see recorded in the Scriptures. Now, there are believers, just so you are aware, all over the world that 
are and do face this type of persecution because they dare to follow Jesus and proclaim the name of Jesus. I have met many of them. Glenn, I know you have as well in places you've traveled where they were, have been beaten, they have been jailed, they have been flogged, and their co-laborers have been put to death for proclaiming the gospel. And, and it would be easy to talk about that in this message as we think of persecution, but I see in this sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark that, that really there are about three types of persecution that Jesus is going to talk about in this chapter. Or three levels of persecution. Number one, we see in the first part of the, of the text that that Jesus is rejected by his friends and family, and that is a means or a way of persecution, rejection from those that you love, those that are close to you, because you're a follower of Jesus and because you just can't keep your mouth shut about Jesus. Anybody in here like that? And, and that is a form of persecution, although a very light form, but but it is a form of persecution. The second we, we're going to see in this next uh, segment from verses 7 uh, through 13 is that, is that there's a form of persecution that, that's going to be there from the world. When I say the world, Scripture means the world system, those who follow the Antichrist, that which is opposed to God, the world system. There is a level of persecution, and we'll see that in the sending out of the twelve. And then lastly, we see in the last instance where John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod, that there is that severe form of persecution that ultimately can lead to death because an individual is personally confronted by the message of the gospel, and they're convicted of sin, and they rebel to the extent of taking life. And so we're going to look at all three of these as we unfold. So let's look at the first one here, beginning in Mark chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read the narrative, and then I'll come back and make some comments to it. Verse 1 begins saying that he, meaning Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Circle that word. It means they were amazed. They were astonished at all that he was saying. You remember at one point in Mark's gospel, it says those who, in Matthew's gospel, those who had heard Jesus said, listen, he teaches like none other we've ever heard teach before because there's power and there's authority in his word. And so they're astonished at Jesus' teaching, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Circle that word, offense. It's that same word that we talked about several months ago that's, that comes from the Greek word scandalizio, which we get our English word scandal. It's that bait stick that's put in an animal trap. You remember when I had the rabbit box that I'd built and there was a bait stick in there that when the animal hit it, he says they, they, they took offense at him. They had taken the bait and they'd put the stick in their mouth. They were offended at Jesus. Solomon tells us that 
An offended brother is harder to win than a fortified city. Offended at Jesus. Offended at his teaching. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. Now this is interesting, verse 6. And Jesus marveled at their unbelief. I can't believe I can't believe that you're not receiving the message and even the signs that confirm the message. I marvel that if I can put words in Jesus's mouth behind this is I'm I'm I marvel that your hearts are so hard that you won't receive the message and repent and follow me, God's provision for your sin. Doesn't it marvel you sometimes? When we, when we look in the world, the culture, and, and we're marveled at the hardness of man's heart. Sometimes we can look in the church, thank God, not this one, but many churches, and you say, man, I'm marveled, and I've preached in some of those churches where it's so hard that even the hearts of those who profess to be Christ followers can be so hard and calloused against the message of God's grace and the gospel. They were astonished. You see, Jesus was one of them. He had grown up there. They knew him since the time he was a little boy. They had watched him. They, they saw him interact, and Jesus was without sin, so he was, he was unique from any other child, but he was one of them. And now all of a sudden he's coming and he's telling us how we should live. Ah. Can you imagine maybe some of the things? Who do you think you are? As my big mama used to say, boy, you're getting too big for your britches. You need to know your place. Understand, you're one of us, and now you're coming with, an, with, with what is perceived to be an air that you're better than one of us. You see, the hearts were so hardened, they, they couldn't get past that. They couldn't receive the message of the gospel because they looked at Jesus as, as just as one who he was. Notice the phrase that they say here in verse 3. They say, isn't this not the carpenter? In other words, stay in your lane, boy. Once a carpenter, always a carpenter. Who do you think you are? You've gone off to college and now you're cutting, you know. <laughs> but, but, but notice they call him Mary's son. Interesting. Most often in that culture, the son would be referred to as the father's son. Not the mother's son. Some commentators believe that they used the name of Mary rather than Joseph because in some way they were saying, please forgive me for using this word, but it's a real word. They were saying, you're just the bastard child. Don't you think Jesus may have been accused of that? We've all grown, many of us have grown up in small towns, right? 
Who do you think you are? Familiarity breeds contempt. Right? You see, folks don't like to see other folks that are one of them either rise above or go beyond what limitations they would say are within their community and culture. To put it into practical terms, when somebody in the body of Christ comes to know Christ, and it may be sometime later that all of a sudden they, they cue in on this, wait a minute, I, not only am I saved because I've trusted Christ, but I'm now realizing that He has called me to be a disciple. He's called me to follow Jesus. And when that person, even within a community of believers, begins to follow after Jesus rather than follow after man-made tradition, I promise you there will be those around him or her that do not like it. Why? Because they're following Jesus. You see, there's a distinct difference in just mentioning the name of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. You know, when I came to Christ, I don't know about you, but the rejection that I perceived from my friends, and we've probably all experienced this level of persecution as a believer. The rejection I experienced from my friends really wasn't that painful. Actually, most of that was my own doing because I knew that they were still engaged in things that I was engaged with. And if I didn't break it off with them, I knew I'd be drawn right back into it again, right? And, and so there wasn't hurt there in that sense of rejection from friends. But listen, many of you experience this, the rejection of those who are your own family, those who love you. All of a sudden, you come to know Christ, and you get serious about this business of knowing Christ. And you may get something from Him. Well, listen, you were baptized when you were a little boy. Don't come to me with this Jesus stuff, right? I, I, listen, you're no different than we are. You, you've grown up with us, and, and you, th- th- who are you? Jesus experienced that rejection and that persecution from those that were his friends and family. The second instance that he lays out for us is is not only the first level that would be rejection of friends and family, but that sense of rejection from the world. And there's a cross-reference that I want you to go ahead and turn there and find. Put your finger there, Matthew chapter 10, because Matthew expounds a little bit more on the dialogue that takes place between Jesus and the twelve. These are the twelve apostles as he's sending them out. Verse 7 in Mark chapter 6, it says, And Jesus called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Who gives the authority? Jesus gives the authority. Gave them authority over unclean spirits, and he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two cloaks or tunics. 
And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they'll not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. That was customary where in that day where if one wasn't hurt, it was symbolizing, listen, I've done my gig. I've, I'm, I've done my responsibility to proclaim it to you. Now I'm, I'm shaking the dust off my feet because you're responsible for what you do with it. So he went out and he proclaimed that people should, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. Now, turn over to Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Jesus says this, same instance, Matthew records it. He says, behold. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. In other words, Jesus said, listen, I want, I want you to know what you're, what you're getting into. We're going to get full disclosure here. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Beware of man, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they'll flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over death to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated for all for what my name's sake we'll end there Jesus is sending out the twelve I, I noticed something in this that we talk about discipleship there, there's a pattern here uh, these twelve had had been called by Jesus and, and they spent what with Jesus? They spent time with Jesus. Not only hearing him teach, hearing him expound the scriptures, teach parables, but they lived with Jesus. Not only did they hear him, but they saw him how he was in submission to the Father and he only did what the Father had told him to do and he was following the Father in that instance in that time the direction of the father's will and so Jesus is saying listen guys you, you've been with me you followed me you've heard my teaching now I'm I'm sending you out but in that process of being a disciple of Jesus there's that thing that that we sit with him we learn from him we can't ever lose this as we go out to do we do it with him and then he sends us out to do it. And so that's what he's doing with these 12 here. Go out. Notice he didn't carry on a gospel ministry of sit at my feet for the next 70 years and go on to the sweet by and by. He sent them out. The other thing I look in here in this particular instance is that he tells them, not to carry any extra stuff with them. Just carry what you, what you need. 
One thing I think Jesus was teaching his disciples, his apostles at this time was that they need to have an absolute reliance on him when they're going out for his purposes and his will. And, and you and I need to have absolute reliance and dependence on him. You see, I'm so afraid that oftentimes we get a greater dependency on our programs than we do on Jesus to move in power by his sovereign will. Nothing wrong with programs. But folks, we can program the church to death and never do what Jesus tells us to do, and that's to go and make disciples who can make other disciples. The other thing that I find in this is that, listen, you're going on a journey, and you need to be light on your feet in the journey. You see those extra things that we carry around with us as we are called to be a disciple of Jesus can be things that weigh us down and slow us down. I was thinking about that this week and how does that apply in my life and I had to do some examination. God, although every good and perfect gift comes from you, I know that. God, you've given me just blessing upon blessing, but Lord, have any of these blessings that you've given me slowed me down or caused me to be weighted down to be on with the mission that you've called me to make disciples? I had to do some soul searching, and there, there are a couple of things. I'm like, you know what? I've got to tweak this in my life and get rid of this because it's hampering what he's called me to do and he's called you to do, and that is to be on mission with him to make disciples. Now, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. What might be there in your life that's weighing you down? But I would ask you to ask him this. Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life, although it's good, it's not bad. Is there anything in my life that is weighing me down and slowing me down from being on mission to make disciples? And as he speaks to you, I would encourage you to respond to them. Third thing I want you to notice in here. We find this from Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel. Notice what they preached. And I'll just give you the phrases. They, they preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. And they preached repent, meaning turn from sin and turn to God. And there is judgment that is coming. Now that's old-fashioned preaching, isn't it? That's not how to win friends and influence people, is it? That's not a good way to sugarcoat it, to get people to know that Jesus loves them, is it? That's what we say. But Jesus sends the twelve out to preach the kingdom of God, to repent and understand that there is judgment coming. I'll just leave it at that. Third thing personally offended or convicted of sin. This is the longest account that's in the three, and it's one that leads to the most severe type of persecution. Beginning in verse 14, King Herod heard of Jesus, heard of all that was happening, because Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying that John the Baptist has raised from the dead. Some were saying that these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. Others said, he's Elijah, the prophets come back. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the old prophets. But when Herod heard of it, he was perplexed. He said, John? 
John the Baptist has come back? You mean the one that I beheaded? Has he raised? For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Let me give you a little background here. Herodias was married to Herod's brother, half-brother Philip. And it's not as though Philip had died and now she's married to Herod. No, what actually happened was Herod wound her and seduced her and took her from her bro- his brother, causing her to divorce him and then taking him as his own wife, her as his own wife. This gal Herodias was also the daughter of Herod the Great, who's related to Herod. And in that sense, she was the cousin of Herod Agrippa. And so John is preaching. He's saying, listen, you illegally divorced, had her divorce her wife, and you illegally divorced your wife. And you took her and you seduced her. And by the way, she is your cousin. This is an incestuous relationship. That's what was going on. They also have that background to see why Herodias was so irritated with John in this passage. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Notice, Herod's not the one that did it. It was Herodias. I would say this vile, she's more wicked than Herod is. She's the one that influenced Herod to throw him in prison. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What's John the Baptist doing there? He's confronting sin with truth. Truth always rubs sin the wrong way when one is not willing to turn from sin. Herodias had a grudge against him. More than a grudge because she wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John. Knowing that John was a righteous and holy man, and Herod kept him safe. When he heard him, and evidently there were dialogues that that John the Baptist would have with Herod, Herod was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. I think there's some indication here that Herod's heart may have been opened a little bit. He was listening to John the Baptist. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. (laughs) I find this funny. Hey guys, I'm throwing a big party for my birthday. (laughs) Do you find the irony in that? He's throwing a big party. This wasn't the birthday parties we're used to. They're throwing a party, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Guys, I want you to picture the scene. His nobleman, the king... What you'd probably be better to picture in your mind is a group of 
grubby men in a room and the wine and the liquor has just been flowing and they're having a good time. And then you see kind of the sickness about, of what is about to happen. Herodias' daughter comes in now and she dances for these drunken, dirty old men. You get the scene? She pleased him. This goes to show how evil Herodias was as well to place her daughter in that situation. Can you see it? The reason I'm wanting to point this out is because, y'all, we all know this. We are living in a cultural culture and society in these times that this is prevalent. King said to her, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. There's her opportunity. Herod's not going to do it, so I'm going to get it. The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. And then she adds on a platter. King was sorry because of his oath he had made. He didn't want to break his oath. Immediately sent out the executioner, cut John's head off, and bring it in on a platter. Why was Herodias so offended and indignant at John the Baptist? One simple answer to this. Because he confronted her with the truth of the Word of God. He didn't spout his opinion... This is what God's Word says. I always say about your opinion and my opinion, the only one that really likes it is you and me. If I'm giving my opinion, I can say you can take it, leave it, chuck it, or flush it. It's just my opinion. What really matters is what God says. He confronted her and Herod with the truth of the Word of God. John the Baptist was by no means politically correct. Amen? There is a way in which we would be advised to present the truth, right? Because there's a way that we can present the truth that really just cuts and, and it can cause... But, but then when we present the truth in love, right, there's a difference. But we still present the truth. I think one of the most offensive ways we as believers present the truth, oftentimes we muddle it in with our opinion, but I call them electronic hand grenades. It, it, it's the Facebook stuff, you know what I'm saying, or the social media stuff. without a shred of evidence of love there 
Can I say this just as a member of the body? If you ever need to confront me, would you please come with me to me in love and with truth? And if I have to do likewise, I promise you I'll come to you in love and with the truth. I'm afraid oftentimes we get pulled into the hysteria When we look at the current issues that we're facing today in our culture that are getting more prevalent, and there's been a lot of talk about it in the last week, just to get some current issues, that, that are diametrically opposed to the Word of God, things that are happening in our culture, just as Herodias and Herod had going on, and John the Baptist confronted it. Listen, we too are called to confront with the truth, but in love. The last week, we heard of the case in New York and in Virginia also of that of abortion late term, even to the point that it would be okay to abort a child, keep them comfortable, and let the mom decide with the doctor whether or not to go ahead and abort the child after the child has been born. We know that that is just completely opposed to what the Word of God says. But the way that we confront it, we need to confront it and address it, but address it in love, and could I say address it with the Word of God, not your own lips. You see, the Word of God is powerful and it's active, like a double-edged sword, the Bible tells us. And sometimes I wonder if we don't rely more on our own opinion than we do the Word of God. Now, the current thing that we're seeing in our culture is the LGBT. I guess you get to decide later what you were born with, I, I, you know, all of that. But I'm not sure the message of hate is going to change anything. We need to address it with the truth, but in love, not hate. The issue of marriage, the Bible clearly teaches one man, one woman. Let God speak for God through His Word. And, and we could go on with, with other issues. Folks, I'm just saying, the moment, though, that we begin to speak out on those things in truth and in love, I can promise you, promise you, promise you that there'll be persecution. But don't get offended by the persecution. Jesus said it was going to happen. Now, let me move on. i got to close. See what happens when I'm out two weeks. Here's some application for us. Let's answer the question, why persecution and how do we avoid it? Here's where we get to the maybe part. Here's some reasons that you and I will experience persecution. Number one is because Jesus said it happened. Reminded of what Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, who all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Decide to live a godly life, decide to follow Jesus, 
Guess what? You're going to be persecuted. The second thing, it, it confirms our active faith is the way I'd like to put this. It, it confirms that we are working out our salvation. When we're persecuted, Peter, when he's writing to a persecuted people, says this in the first letter, chapter 4, verse 12. He said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> don't be surprised. It's a fleas that go with a dog. The third thing of why persecution is, listen, light clashes with darkness. It just clashes. Let me skip some of these others I had and answer the question, how can we avoid being persecuted? First one is be ashamed of the gospel. You want to avoid persecution? Be ashamed of the gospel. The Apostle Paul said, hey, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power unto salvation. There is no other way except through the gospel message. Second way to avoid persecution, conform to the world. Put on your Sunday best. Come in, sing the songs, do the routine. And then go out and live your life as though it doesn't matter at all. Just, just blend in. Conform to the world. A third thing I'd say on this, a way to avoid persecution is don't have any compelling conviction to share the gospel. Don't feel any, any sense of responsibility at all to share the gospel. You'll avoid persecution. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting. In other words, I can't brag about preaching the gospel because there's a necessity that's been laid upon me. Woe of me if I don't preach the gospel. There's a necessity that's been laid on all of us. To proclaim and share the gospel. It's not somebody else's job. It's not the hired clergy to do it. Preach the gospel. In conclusion, what's the right response to persecution if you are? Number one, choose to continue to live a godly life following Jesus. Don't take it personal. They're not doing it because of you. They're doing it because of who? Jesus. Number two, obey His command. Just continue to be about what He's called and commanded you to do, and that is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, there'll be some that don't like it that you love, that you, you love a neighbor they don't love. Right? Keep doing it. Thirdly, take his commission on your life as your own mission, and that is to win, disciple, and sin. And lastly, reflect 
remember daily the great price that He has paid for your salvation. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.